sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Uh, I'm your pal, Nate, here with your pal and mine, Aaron. Uh, Aaron, we've been recording these podcasts here at a breakneck speed, thanks to Justin Schwind, the booking ninja who's been stacking up guests one after another. Our bookie in uh, New Mexico. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing. Uh, we'll actually be recording three episodes this week, and they'll be rolled out over time. I'm still spinning from the one we did yesterday mm-hmm. uh, with uh, Dr. Quincy. Uh, about religious trauma. And there was one thing, uh, it was almost an aside. She talked about loading the language in our conversations one with another in a way that, you know, that can turn out to be a power play. Mm-hmm. And she used an example, uh, our tendency, uh, the tendency of, I, I'm, I, I have been guilty of this. I'm going to own it, of saying, God told me, or I, God gave me a message, or God told me to do this as a justification to add some like further weight to a decision that I have made. That's not to say that we cannot hear from God or get a leading of the Holy Spirit or anything like that, but that opens up this whole subject of uh, the, the will of God. So I'm going to go to Pastor Aaron. You probably have preached on the will of God over the years. Well, we talked about this a little at the retreat during the live podcast. Um, yeah, this this stuff kills me um, because it's such – it is weighty. We all mm-hmm. want to know what's God's will for my life, but yeah. that's rarely broken down. And then sometimes – People talk about the permissive will versus the, you know, we add all these other oh, things. Oh, yeah, the perfect will um, versus the permissive will of God. And I've, I've heard it parsed that way. Yeah, that or we talk about the center of God's will, like you're in God's will, but am I in the center of God's will? It's like we're always mm-hmm. trying to figure out how to not feel comfortable that God's okay with where we're at and what we're doing. There's always something yes. else I'm missing. Uh-huh. And, and man, I think, A— I'm pretty sure that Jesus came to bring us freedom and abundant life. Yes. And none of that weighted language brings either. It brings uh-huh. like bondage and, and mm-hmm. fear. And what am I missing? And is God always disappointed because I'm missing it? So sure, this, is, this was always my simple answer to that question that is for me. If nobody else wants it, fine. It's still for me. Okay. Uh, number one, the word will in in Greek is translated equally pleasure. And somehow oh, when we talk about, God. yeah, when we talk about God's will, that sounds like mm-hmm. all heavy and, and Christian-y, but when it's just like, oh no, that literally means what stokes God out, what makes him mm-hmm. smile. Mm-hmm. And scripture's full of it, like explicitly, in everything, find a way to give thanks. Not for everything, but in everything, find sure, thanks. Sure. For this is the pleasure, this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. So the first thing I'd say is the Bible's full of straight up saying, oh, you want to know what God's will is? You want to know what what just tickles him, makes him smile? Uh, Well, there, there's that verse. When you're in this hard moment, you say, okay, I'm going to pause. 
and I'm going to find gratitude, God's like, oh, kid, I love that. Great. I'm doing mm-hmm. God's will. So okay. not to overcomplicate it, to keep it simple, that these are just mm-hmm. things God said I like. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other huge piece for me, besides, and by the way, you see how relational that becomes. Like, I start yeah, to get sure. excited because I'm like, oh, this actually, this is making my dad smile right now. I know, because mm-hmm. he said mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But the other part is an unspoken and underlying feeling that if God's will is a thing and I can get it or miss it in any given moment, that it's a pass or fail. And if I miss this opportunity, I'll never get it back again. So I'm always in jeopardy of losing stuff. Yes. To which I would say, what kind of father is your God? Like, if I, as a dad, make something not clear to my kids, I just drop some yeah. subtle hints. But I'm yeah. like, they, they better get it. Though. And then they don't get it. They don't get my yeah. hints. And they do yeah. something else. And then as a father, mm-hmm. I go, ah I gave you a hint. You missed it. You'll never go to that restaurant ever for the rest of your life. It's gone. It's off the table for you. Like, mm-hmm. I would be an insane father. Yes, And yet that's what we put on God with this whole God's will thing, is that if I miss something, God isn't the kind of father that says, oh, kid, sorry, no, this I have this other thing for you. Let's circle mm-hmm. back around, buddy. Let's mm-hmm. uh, you, you might need to pick up some pieces of what you just broke over there. Pick it up. We're coming back around because God delights in growing his spirit in me to become the man that he made me to be. Mm-hmm. We want to talk about God's pleasure. God's will is that I am slowly becoming more me, which is also becoming more like Christ as mm-hmm. I engage in the world around me that he gave me to live in, the relationships and the gifts that he gave me. Mm-hmm. It's that old quote from Chariots of Fire when Eric Little says, when yeah, I run, yeah. what did he say? I feel I feel his pleasure. I yeah. feel his pleasure. And yeah. that's it. So if we want to break down God's will to an incredibly simplistic way that makes me feel happy to engage that in my own life without fear or anxiety, that's those are the two main things. That's really, really, really helpful. Thanks, Aaron. No problem. Hey, I feel like you and I have a pretty good relationship. Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, it's not I, a marriage I, relationship, I, but I it's a like, friendship. I don't like where this is leading already, but go on. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what you're... Yep, go on. But uh, uh, you know what? A lot of scientific attention has been paid in recent decades to relationships. Not just marital relationships, but working relationships. Well, we have a guest this week, actually, who focuses on marital relationships. But I am quite certain we're going to be able to glean from this guy some real wisdom, some real insight in uh, in a way that will help us. Well, it will help you and I to be even better friends, perhaps. Well, that wasn't as painful as I thought, and I'm in full agreement. So let's get to this guy. (laughs) Okay, stick around. We'll be back in a moment on the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, 
Welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. We are privileged to have with us as our guest this week, clinical uh, social worker from uh, the great state of California. Michael Bast is with us. Hello, Michael. Good to, good to meet you guys. Now, Michael, I have to ask you, because as the listeners know, I'm an avid sports watch, <laughs> watcher person. And I heard that since you're in Santa Rosa, close to the Giants, you must have been watching this Aaron uh, Judel uh, Aaron fiasco. Judge, come on. That, come that's on. what I said. Aaron Judge pre- fiasco. He was almost <laughs> going to come back, but now he's with the, the Cleveland Browns. What are you <laughs> feeling? This is the first time. Yeah. Well, you guys are, 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 are ahead of me in time zones. This is the first I'm hearing of this. This is trash. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Aaron, Aaron is an avid fan of sportball, whatever that is. Uh, but yeah, I'm sorry. Aaron Judge. Signed with the Yankees, a nine-year, three hundred and sixty million dollar contract. He's not coming to the Giants. He's staying with the Yankees. And uh, my my condolences. Thank you. Michael. Thank you. Yeah. 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 Lo- lo- local boy. We you know, obviously went for the cash. Yeah, you can't blame him, can you? So he's a local boy. I didn't pick up on that. Yeah, yeah. A little town up near Sacramento. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now wish him wow. the best, but uh, mm-hmm. move on. Well, give us some of your story. I I read that at one point in your life, uh, you were you were kind of deciding between bartending and uh, and being a priest. So I'm I need I a little bit more. I put on the internet <laughs> and baseball. Yeah. Okay. Well, it, yeah, I would have been sports casting because I because I couldn't hit a curveball. But mm. but uh, uh, but you know that's true. I grew up in San Francisco in a little Italian neighborhood. And uh, uh, we we lived up above my dad's bar, and uh, and so he was you know he was my role model and all like that. But it was a choice for me. Between, I think at that early on, between did I want to be a priest or or maybe a maybe a bartender? And the compromise of those two things, I think, is a clinical social worker. That's about that's. <laughs> how, how true that is! Oh, how true that is! Unbelievable. So, uh, describe for us in a, in a few minutes, if you will, the the path that took you there from the little Italian neighborhood in uh, San Francisco yeah. to where you are today in Santa Rosa with your practice. Okay. Well, I would say the 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 story there is that my dad passed when I was eleven, and uh, oh. my family went through some hard times. And uh, I think that ultimately led me into uh, social work. You know, I think like probably a lot of uh, a lot of people get into the mental health field. We have some uh, we have some you know some hurtful thing that goes on, and and in some ways we want to make right by that. And I think that mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. true for me. Um, I ended up um, running uh, a teen crisis program. And, uh, and in that program, and this is how I really got into Gottman therapy, is that we did a lot of family therapy. We had a program that was family therapy based. We, we, we had suicidal teenagers and we, we tried mm-hmm. to involve the family uh, as much as possible in their care. Mm-hmm. What I found much of the time is that what I felt like I needed to do is kick the teenager out of the room and just meet with the parents. Because in many of these cases, not all, but in many of the cases, the parents 
um, really had a lot going on between them that was troublesome and mm-hmm. was complicating things for this teenager. So uh, I, uh, a colleague of mine, Marcia Gomez, who ended up becoming my business partner for a number of years, and I took training with the Gottmans. Uh, they were rolling out their approach uh, here in California back in 2002, and, uh, and we were just really taken by them. So uh, we became certified in their approach. We ended up becoming uh, workshop leaders and trainers and consultants for the organization. And so I've you know, been associated with so, them. Since so that. we've had at least one other guest who came from the Gottman couples therapy world. What is it that attracted you when you saw it you, uh, and said, okay, this is, this is what I want to do? I mean, frankly, I would say there's two things. The, the, the one is hearing John talk first. Uh, I loved his sense of humor. He's got, he's mm-hmm. a great, uh, stand-up comedian. He played Monty Python videos to show couple, you know, what, what it looked like with people <laughs> arguing. I thought that, <laughs> I thought that was a, got my attention. And, and then he had, uh, a very sound research basis to what he was doing. I mean, John, John's a brilliant guy. Uh, I, I think, um, you know, uh, uh, I, there's, I'm in awe of how much he, how well read he is. Um, but his, his brain power is in, it's pretty incredible. He started out, um, going to MIT studying to be essentially a rocket scientist and somewhere mm-hmm. in there, his passion changed and he decided to get into psychology and, and, wow. and then, you know, had a number of failed relationships and decided that either, you know, I think literally what he said is either you can have a relationship or you can research relationships. And so he, <laughs> he decided <laughs> he, he and a colleague, Robert Levinson, uh, back at in, uh, Indiana University at the time, decided that they would uh, research relationships, and they went at it as uh, you know, really uh, as 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 uh, just total novices. They just uh, mm-hmm. they didn't know anything, and they did this multi-phasic kind of research on couples, which you know ended up being uh, incredible research. Uh, it, it, they, the findings that they had almost caused them not to get tenured because they were so positive that that their supervisors said, you know, this we can't predict this well in psychology. So yeah. be wrong. <laughs> and mm-hmm. have to go back to the drawing board. But actually then they just kept replicating the studies and said kept coming out with the same kinds of things. I would imagine that a guy coming from a physics or math background, whatever it was, but yeah. from that scientific approach would conduct that research rather differently than someone who had their doctorate in psychology and they knew, you know, how to, how to put the cocaine up the rat's noses or whatever they do in psychology. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's exactly right. I mean, the first part of that is because, um, they, you know, they, of that, of just what you said that, 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 you know, John has that kind of mathematical brain and then this history of failed relationships they went at this with no hypotheses. So where I, mm. typically you'd say, well, we think we know what we're talking about. And we're going to try to prove that. They just said, we don't know. 
We have no mm-hmm. idea, um, you know, how any of this works. So let's just start looking at it. The one idea they had is they wanted to look at couples that did well and then couples that didn't do well. So they kind of, that was, that's how they went at it. They said, let's try to divide these two groups and then see what predicts things going one way or the other way. So Mm -hmm. I want to talk about some of these predictors. However, I want to ask first, this seems like a dangerous question because if somebody is already married listening to this and you start talking about predictors of unhappiness and they're like, yup, that's my spouse. Is there going to be an end hope piece to that for that person? I mean, this is a great dating show all of a sudden. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, it's a, it's a very good, it's a very good question because if you, you could look at, you could look at the science in one way and say, it's all very pessimistic and you could, you could really just kind of walk away depressed. Um, but if you look at it another way, then you see, well, no, there's a light somewhere down at the end of that tunnel. And, and that's really kind of what you want to head for, you know, for like, for example, uh, one of the findings that I think is something I, you know, I wish that I had known early on in my marriage and it, it was enlightening to me is they found that just about 70% of the problems that any couple has, not just these, what he'd call master couples or disaster couples, but any couple has, are problems that the couple will never fully solve. 70% Mm -hmm. of the problems that you have, you'll never fully solve. That sounds pretty pessimistic. I mean, you know, hearing it like that, I think. Um, But then if you look a little further, what they would say would be, well, let me just say what that means. I mean, what we're talking about there would then would be personality differences. Like say one mm-hmm. person is introverted and they just, you know, they want to come home in the evening and sit down and just be with their spouse. The other one's extroverted. They want to have half the town over to the house, right? You, you put those two people together and what maybe started out as the introverted person saying, well, I just love being around this person because they're so energetic. And the extroverted person saying, I just love this person because they're so deep. Well, but then when they're together for five or six years, then they start going, well, wait a second. You know, you never want to have anybody over. Well, you you want to have everybody in town over. Mm-hmm. So you, you have the nature of what we call a perpetual problem, right? Mm-hmm. What they found, and again, sounds pretty pessimistic. 70% of the, of every pro- of the problems that they'll face like that never fully solve. But what they find is with the couples that do well, they just find a way to keep those kind of problems in some kind of dialogue and come up with little temporary compromises over time, Mm -hmm. right? Not big compromises, not changing who they are, but, but things like, all right, you know, this Saturday night, you know, have everybody over, I'll grant and bear it and I'll make the best of it. I won't be a jerk. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll have, but, but the next weekend, you know, can we do it my way? It was something. Right. So, se- so 70% of the issues are foundational issues to who the people are, but that doesn't mean that you can't figure out what is the appropriate structure to build on a different yeah. foundation than you expected to be dealing with. Yeah, I would say that that's well said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this might, you might have answered the question, you might not, before you get into these predictors. Yeah. How many of these predictors are changeable? 
and it might be the same 70%, but if a couple says, oh my gosh, you just listed all these predictors, I'm going to be unhappy. Yeah. Some of those must be something that you can work through and educate yeah. yourself and practice. So how many of those predictors would you say can change? I would say that uh, virtually all of them can change to some degree. Uh, now, the, the thing about those perpetual problems is that there's a kind of a paradox in it because part of the change there is, is, having, is coming to some kind of acceptance, right? So we have a time of acceptance versus change, right? It's kind of like the serenity prayer, if you, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, there is that kind of wisdom, I think, that has to come into it. Um, but the, you know, the, the big one, uh, the big predictor, the one I think that, you know, that got John in People Magazine and Oprah Winfrey show and all these kind of, you know, popular pla you know, places in society uh, was what he called the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And, 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 uh, and I would say all of those, those four are changeable. There's an antidote to each one. It's not easy, but this is something that a couple, if they work together, can, you know, can uh, move with. So introduce us to these horses. Okay. We, we're equestrians. <laughs> Horsemen. Horsemen, Aaron. Okay. Oh. All right. Just to, to give you um, uh, a, a snapshot first of how they came about this, uh, these four horsemen, is that what they, what they did is that they would, they would ask a couple um, to take 15 minutes and talk about their last argument. And, mm -hmm. and when they would do that, they developed a coding system for emotion uh, and, and uh, called the SPAF coding system. And so these were all kind of important uh, behaviors and emotions that they found you know, related to that couple. And, and they would just count these behaviors while the couple was talking. And what they found was that the behaviors that were most predictive over time of a couple being miserable and then eventually breaking up were these four factors that kept coming up, you know, cause they would have the couples come back and like one study was 20 years long and every four years the couple would come back. So they had an idea well, what happened to those people over time. And so they are, so they are not looking at the actual argument that was had, but how each person is describing the argument yeah, or, or their behaviors, for example, or their, oh, they would, if they saw somebody, uh, uh, showing anger or showing, mm -hmm. uh, you know, some, uh, form of, uh, uh, repair, uh, which would be some, you know, way of, of, uh, uh, you know, positively engaging their, you know, their, their partner, right? They would record those behaviors like that. Mm -hmm. um, and then what they found is that these, again, these four, uh, these four behaviors statistically just jumped to the top. And, and again, you would say, you know, in, in statistical terms and that they would, that they're predictive, they're highly correlated with, um, with this outcome of disaster for that relationship. So the first of those four horsemen is what John called criticism. And what he means by mm -hmm. criticism is uh, one person has a complaint to lodge. The way they lodge the complaint as if the, is, is as if that complaint lies within their partner's body. They would say, you, you always, you never, right? That 
the, the partner is the object of the complaint. And you say, well, that's, that's what I call criticism. The second of the horsemen is what he called defensiveness. And it's not kind of a fancy, like a Freudian theory of defensiveness. He would just say, if I see the, if I see the person either becoming an innocent victim, you know, given a laundry list of the reasons why they did what they did say, or counterattacking, right? Be, you know, mm-hmm. having righteous indignation and, and trying to, trying to counterattack their partner, he would say that's defensiveness. The third of the horsemen actually is the most predictive, and that's what, and that's the expression of the emotion of contempt, where yes. right, where we're talking down to somebody, and and he would, and they saw that not just verbally in terms of of the words that are said, but non-verbally. So you know, so he would use Paul Ekman's system of of uh, uh, identifying uh, nonverbal facial uh, communication. And he would say, well, contempt looks, it looks kind of like this. I'm going to do my best contempt for you guys. It's like the curling mm-hmm. up the left side of your face and then rolling your eyes. Like, oh, please. Mm-hmm. Right. So mm-hmm. if, they, if you see that or you, or you hear this message, like you're, you're, you're talking down to your partner, you say that's contempt. That one is highly predictive, you know, far more than the other than the other uh, three of the horsemen. And then the final one is what he called stonewalling, which just means shutting down. You know that one mm-hmm. person's talking and the other one just kind of turns away, and they they're there but they're not there, right? They're just they're just not responsive anymore. And that one he would say is most associated with physiologic arousal because there was a whole part of this research where they had people wired up to all kinds of physiological monitoring devices right they had uh they had they they did uh pre and post uh uh, blood and urine samples they had a little little uh uh, device on their chairs called a wiggleometer where if they would be rocking around their chairs they'd pick up on the wiggling they had galvanic Mm -hmm. skin response they had pulse oximeter they just had these people kind of wired up like lab rats, I guess you would say. And they would see that oftentimes if you would see this stonewalling functioning or, or, or behavior happening, what you'd have is this rise in, in uh, you know, physiology going on. Mm-hmm. You know, this person is getting what we call flooded and they're mm-hmm. looking away because they're saying, I'm trying to tamp this down. You look like a, you know, a dangerous animal to me right now. And I got to kind of turn away from you. So he said, th- those are the four horsemen. That's what, you know, we said. And if you see them all together in a 15-minute segment, well, then you'd, and, and, and you had that recording, John would say, I'm putting that in the pile of disasters, and I'll have these people mm-hmm. keep coming back and see if, 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 you know, this plays out, that these are, uh, these are people that are going to be miserable and people that are going to end up breaking up. And at, at a bet, you know, somewhere in the, in the mid-90s, about uh, uh, 90, 93%, 93%, 95% of the time, that bore out to be true. That if you wow. saw that configuration, that couple was, you know, they would either break up or if you interviewed them and said, well, okay, you seem, you know, ultimately everything that we see here look, looks like you're, you're telling us you're miserable. Why haven't you broken up? And they would say, well, you know, because we believe it's best for the kids for us to stay together or our religion tells us we should stay together or financially it's 
better that we be in two different rooms but stay in the same house because we can you know that, that we can get by that way but by all, all measures they're miserable right? so yeah mm. about 93 percent of the time um, these four horsemen would predict that again if you have all four in a 15-minute conflict discussion you know, that would you know that's what they found so since contempt is the the king of the horse yeah how i i I want to hit it from both sides because I think you, I think spouses that have contempt for their spouse probably feel that and realize that. Yeah. I mean, so how that likely did not happen overnight that developed. And so what does the person who has contempt, what are ways that they can start to disengage from that and find something else yeah it's a it's a that's a good question that if i have contempt for my partner what can i do about that and i I would say well the first thing is that um what they found uh is a as a preventive uh factor if you will, a preventive antidote to contempt it would be forming a culture of appreciation so you say, okay, well then early on, you can't enact that in the moment. If you're feeling contempt and you're acting it out, to just suddenly stop on a dime and say, well, let me just say something appreciative to you. It's going to be phony. And, it, and I don't think human beings can do that very well. Um, but if you work a little bit over time at stopping and trying to notice, what are the things I have gratitude for? And to say those things out loud. You know, voice your appreciation for the little things that, that are done in, 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 uh, in your life together. That seems to be uh, a protective factor, right? that that would be a primary, primary antidote. Yeah. Nate, tie that in with uh, gratitude work from the, the 12-step side of things and, and what changes Oh yeah, I mean, it, yeah, it's it's unbelievable the role that gratitude plays in interrupting the addictive cycle. Yeah, uh, because there is this downward spiral of pessimism and hopelessness that that leads to uh, you know a, an overwhelming desire to medicate, and I've experienced that personally, and it was it was a real. A revelation to me when an early sponsor in 12-step recovery, when I was just in the throes of a compulsion to act out, you know, had me pull out uh, a notebook and write uh, a full page gratitude list. Yeah. And it's amazing. It is amazing about, because uh, I, I think that the voice uh, that was driving my contempt and self-pity and hopelessness and all that kind of stuff was a deep belief that I don't have what I need or what I deserve. And, and then focusing on gratitude for a little while and realize how blessed and how full of life I am. And specifically, I recall always in doing those gratitude lists. And I'm a little disappointed in myself that I've lost the daily discipline of writing a gratitude list. My wife played figuratively. Uh, 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 She had a major role to play in those gratitude lists. And I'm sure that that had a beneficial effect on our relationship when I came home because uh, it sure needed repair. We were in a very sorry state. 
Can you, can you say more of what role she played? You said a great role to play. What was that? Uh, well, for instance, uh, I, I, I'm a recovering sex addict, right? So the one thing that I was focusing on was our physical relationship. I wasn't taking any responsibility for the deterioration of our physical relationship. And I was telling myself this story that I am deeply deprived. And therefore, it justified my stepping outside the marriage to meet what I thought was a fundamental human need. Yeah. Okay. Now, when I start to focus on all the ways in which my wife enriches my life and my family and all the things that she does and all that we have together. Uh, and well, now uh, that whole physical thing gets put in perspective. And I'm no longer feeling deprived and martyred and therefore, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, justified in whatever reparative activity I want to engage in. Uh, yeah. It's amazing to me how much how how much more beautiful, desirable, wonderful and understanding my wife became when I changed my perspective. Yeah. That's powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well let me rein on this a little bit by saying there must be a spectrum of contempt folks out there. Some of them might tend towards being an asshole and being arrogant and possibly being a little more narcissistic or full-blown narcissistic. That's a whole different yep. thing. But I want to say that the majority of people who develop contempt, probably it's coming from disappointment mm -hmm. and it becomes self-protective in a way. Yep. But it's not for no reason that, like, Nate, you described your story. That's that's one thing, mm -hmm. but for others, they might actually have a partner who, whether it's the husband or wife, is just continually not doing their own work. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when they try to put that gratitude in, they then are encountered with the very thing that planted the seeds of contempt. Mm -hmm. And so how are, is there anything for that person who says, okay, there are always realities of things I can be grateful for, but darn it, the second I do it, I get hit in the face with this again. What do I do with yeah. that? That's a, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a good one because that's where now we get into, uh, and I guess this is what leads people to couples therapy is there's so much that a person can do on their own, but at a certain point, both players got to be involved in changing mm -hmm. together, right? That this is a teamwork function. Um, so I, yeah, that one person just can't kind of do their work in a silo. It has to mm -hmm. be right. in unison. Right, 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 right. What would you say to the person that feels contempt from their spouse? What can they do with that? Um, well, I would say the, the first thing is that it, it's important to not be silent about it, just to name it. Uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, there are better and worse ways of doing that, you know, to, to, you know, to, to step into just a counterattack, we would say, well, that's, you know, that's, you know, that's, that's just defensiveness. If I just say, well, you know, you shot me with a 10 pound, uh, cannonball, I'm going to pull, 
pull out a 20 pound cannonball and hit Ooh, back with and, it. And boy, that's dangerous because you've just added a second horseman to the <laughs> equation and you're moving towards unhappiness. <laughs> We're up in the chances, you know, statistically, <laughs> this is not going to go well. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and, and, and again, you know, that person, it depends on that person who's your partner. If that person just happened to slip into some contempt and, and, and that can happen, you know, that I'd say contempt is kind of an easy emotion in some ways it's protective, like you say, and there are other emotions that tend to be behind it. And so if rather than, than divulging some of these emotions that might, you know, make me more vulnerable, I just come out with some contempt and I, I just say something that's kind of a put down to you. Well, mm. if, if, you know, if, if I have kind of a good enough partner and, and my partner is talking down to me and I can say, hey, that, you know, I don't like that. I feel like you're talking down to me. I need you to say, you know, that differently to me, you know, something along those lines. If you have a good enough partner that can, can stop and say, oh, my bad, I'm sorry, you know, and own it. And then, and then take a look at, well, what's behind that? What am I really trying to say here? Because I think the contempt oftentimes is a shortcut. It's a, you know, it's a, uh, it's kind of a defensive shortcut to say something that it would be harder to say otherwise. Is it uh, worth it or dangerous for the partner who's experiencing the contempt towards them if their partner is not? you know, wise and can stop and go say, you're right. Is it a good idea or dangerous for that partner to try to figure out what is behind the contempt themselves? Oh, to, to try to read my partner's mind and try to figure that mm-hmm. out. I mean, mm-hmm. well, I mean, you're setting it up there with the read your mind. You're putting that on a key. Uh, no, but, but, but to try to, try to discover and that can be through conversations yeah. not necessarily directly addressing the contempt yeah. but what what is this person they're feeling something toward me yeah and to get to the what what in the world are you feeling and why are you feeling that yeah. i think yeah i mean i, I guess I, I i kind of uh uh in, impulsively or intuitively jumped out there with the mind reading thing i think that you know, again, again, I think it depends on who this partner is. Like, again, if you're talking about being married to somebody, you know, a very uh, uh, injured, narcissistic person as your partner, um, then it's going to be hard to engage in a teamwork manner without some kind of help with that, with them. Mm-hmm. And so you may be on your own trying to sort out, well, you know, what the heck's going on with my partner? Um, and, you know, your own well-being you may need to do that i think um but if you had a partner that had some wherewithal and you could you could engage them i mean that's going to be better because you i I don't it doesn't work i think if one person uh sort of starts theorizing about what might be going on with you and then start Mm -hmm. things like well i think this you know this may have to do with your mother and and how you mm-hmm. raised, and you know, you know, you know, that tends to go bad, right? That comes yeah. across as contempt, doesn't it? It comes yes. across as contempt, like counter contempt, right? Exactly. Yeah, well, meaning yeah. contempt. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it's kind of a maternal contempt. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> I think yeah. that's I think that's well said. 
Now, you use the word wounded, the yeah. partner. as well. Do all of these coping mechanisms, these maladaptive coping mechanisms that we bring into relationship that tend to work against us, do they all or by and large have their roots in our own woundedness? Is there a trauma basis below and behind this stuff? Um, I would say, I, mean, I guess I'd have to answer that on two levels. The, I mean, the, the one thing I think is that is, well, I think it's true that what we bring into relationship is what we learn in our family environments. That's the laboratory. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all of us resort to some kind of coping me- mechanism, some of some being uh, better than other ones. Um, so we all do, we, we all you know fall prey to some defensiveness sometimes just to keep our psyches t- together. Hopefully we're, we're not using real toxic kind of coping mechanisms, um, mm-hmm. like projecting our issues onto our partner and that, that kind of thing. Um, but I, yeah, I would say that, that, um, you know, it's, th- these problems are going to be more serious if you have one or both partners that are, that are coming from you know, tra- like a traumatic family environment uh, yeah. growing up. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would say that that's one thing that helps Allie and me. We're very different in a lot of ways. We've married now 43 years. We both have a trauma history. Yeah. Uh, and we understand each other's trauma history. Yeah. And as a result, we tend to give each other a lot of latitude. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. It, it it really helps uh, on the empathy th- side of things. Yes. To 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 uh, it helps. I know Allie does this all the time. When I just do something thoughtless, somehow she's got it programmed in her mind. This guy had a rough time. Yeah. Yeah. And that you know that that comes out of some. And I know I do the same for her. At any rate, it's it's one of the ways that we adapt to one another and deal with that 70 percent of stuff that, you know, we likely are not going to be able to change. I think what you're talking about there, if, if I can if I can comment uh, quickly mm-hmm. on it is is uh, that it's that's powerful. What the two of you are doing, I think, is very that's a very healthy way of of coping. And mm-hmm. oftentimes I think what happens is for us when 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 things uh, really escalate uh, in a uh, in a manner between a, a couple is oftentimes there is this kind of triggering process that goes on that something may mm-hmm. be said or done that brings us back you know on this kind of super highway uh, uh, track within our brains to some some experience or feeling from the past a well mm-hmm. path like that and mm-hmm. you know it, your partner says. Um, whatever they say. And now I've superimposed somebody else or some other experience on them. Right. Mm -hmm. Triggering process. That's, that's that, that old feeling. And the more that we can have awareness of those things with, for ourselves, the better, but also if your Mm -hmm. partner can have some, I would say even, you know, to hold these things sacred to a certain degree to say, there's that, you know, there's that old wound. There's that, there's thing that happened. Right. And if we can own up to that in the moment and and take responsibility for it. Yeah. OK, there it is. But, you know, I, I can I'm not going to take it too personally because I know that that's what that's about. I, 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 I think that that um, 
again, I, I, I commend you and I would say that um, seems to me what you're describing is a real strength that you and your wife have in your relationship mm. that way. Mm. Now we're starting to run to the end of our time, but I wanted to ask of these predictors, what were some of the most surprising predictors for either happiness or unhappiness? Okay. Yeah. And didn't get into all the, it maybe it's more interesting to talk about the predictors of misery than the predictors of, of, of uh, success. Cause there are, there are nine factors that are predictors of, um, uh, of. Oh, please tell us those. We will extend the interview. I want to hear the nine. <laughs> Give us the nine. Give us the nine. I'll try to shotgun them for you. Uh, the, the first, okay. the first would be having good what you call love maps, which would mean having just a you know a lot of knowledge of your partner and your partner having mm -hmm. a sense that they're known, to, that mm -hmm. very powerful. Having a having what we call strong fondness and admiration, which would be uh, you know, a culture of appreciation. Mm -hmm. uh, doing a lot of turning towards, which would be um, either with bids or without bids, finding ways to um, meet your partner's needs. You know that mm -hmm. uh, you, you, you that you you don't turn away from your partner against your partner. You find a way just to, you know, even without enthusiasm, sometimes you know, your your partner says, "Hey, look at that bird," and you go, "I don't really want to look at the bird, but okay, all right, I see the bird." You know that that mm -hmm. you, you you you're responsive in that way. Mm -hmm. uh, when you said with or without bids, what did that mean? Well, a bid would be uh, your partner says to you, you know, while you're laying on the couch trying to take a rest, and your partner says, "Look, oh, look at that bird! I've never seen a bird like that." Well, then then you go, "Oh, okay, yeah, I see, I, I see that bird, right? All right." Unbid would be, I know that my partner wow. loves. Uh, a certain kind of food, and I'm gonna mm -hmm. I'm gonna make sure to have that kind of food, you know, something like that, because I got a good love right. of who my partner is. Right. Um, right. The other then with those things are cooking. Usually, then uh, then the next one would be to have a positive perspective. Right. That if, if we got those first three things working, then usually we give each other the benefit of the doubt. Right. That's what we call a positive mm -hmm. perspective. Something happens, and I don't think the worst. I I I think okay, well. She must be having a hard day. That's why, you know, she made that comment to me rather than here we go again. You know, life is miserable and I can't I'm stuck with this person, something like that. And then the next one is um, having skills and managing conflict. And there are too many for me to mention, but it would be being skilled mm -hmm. in that. The other one would be uh, finding ways to uh, make each other's life dreams come true to know what your partner's life dreams are and support those. The hard ones there would be when your life dream and their life dream a but, which is, you know, comes into that play with those perpetual problems, right? And that's how mm -hmm, people mm -hmm. stuck. You know, you you want to travel the world, but your your partner says, I just really like staying home. I like having, you know, mm -hmm. hearth and home. Uh, you work that out. One, you know, one wants to have kids. The other one doesn't want to have kids. The, you know, those are the, the tricky situations, but you know, making life dreams come true for each other. The the other one would be what we call developing shared meaning. So, you know, having you know, ways that you see yourself as different from everyone else symbolically. You're your own kind of people, own kind of couple. Mm -hmm. Having roles that you develop with that you share, that you agree on in some way. Having um, goals that you have uh have in common and then having what we call rituals of connection 
ways that you come together, whether it's like every Sunday we do this or every evening we do that, or this is what a weekend means to us, or this is how we say goodbye. This is how we say hello. This is how we say good night. Um, you know, as how we check in about the day, right? Having those kind of things. And then the other two that came from later research uh, are, 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 and that's a whole nother big old book, which is about trust and commitment, right? That having, mm-hmm. having you know, trust and then trust, you know, is a building block to commitment in a relationship. Those are the predictors of it going well. Uh, the thing, but to answer your question, in terms of things, there's a couple things that come to mind in terms of things that aren't, you know, are not entirely predictable. The one is that uh, anger doesn't predict uh, relationships falling apart. Um, you know, mm-hmm. that was one of the things they coded. It's that if you mix anger with the four horsemen, you know, then yeah, right. Mm-hmm. right that's the, that's the deal. I mean, just being angry, no, that doesn't predict things going bad. And the other is that um, couples that um, you know that do well oftentimes have as many conflicts as couples that don't do well. But the couples that do well do really well at repair, meaning that they shortcut conflicts before they escalate too far. Right? They have mm. ways to talk to each other to down. You know, and I would, I would imagine that they also have the skills that at the other side of conflict they feel closer together than they did before. Yeah, yeah. That that, that that's what you said. I think is a very wise thing because I think that that. You know, it, 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 I'm, I'm more of a conflict avoidant person, and it took me a while, uh, you know, uh, as an adult to, to learn that, you know, a, a primary pathway to intimacy is through conflict. When you have differences and you can deal with those differences or have the kinds of ex- the experiences that, you know, that that you're talking about where uh, where you, you see each other and you know that, OK, this is a triggering thing for my partner. Um these are the things that, you know, that build intimacy. Um, mm-hmm. um, I would imagine that if somebody hears the, the term makeup sex and doesn't know what that means, then it probably means they haven't learned how to do conflict. Well. Exactly. Well said. <laughs> Very well said. Well, how do people get in touch with you and learn more about you and learn more about all this stuff? Because we just scratched the surface of just almost nothing. Here. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, uh, you know, I, I, my partner, uh, you know, business partner, Marcia and I, um, we still have a website called SonomaCouplesWorkshops.com. We used to do these art and science of love workshops. We stopped doing them. Um just coincidentally before the pandemic, um, because her husband and my wife, who are our support team said, we're just done with doing these workshops. We want to travel or we want to play. Mm-hmm. Or, and so, so they, they kind of talked us out of doing the workshop. So we may, rep- we may do a greatest hits tour at some point, but right now we're mm-hmm. doing those. Marcia is doing a lot of training of therapists down in Latin America and we're both mainly doing what's called marathon therapy. So that's really, that's really all I'm doing right now is being a grandparent and doing this marathon therapy, which I'm in a process with the Gottman Institute of, of a research study on this model, which is uh, meeting for three days with a couple and then doing follow-up sessions. 
Um, okay. Yeah. But for the most part, that's, you know, that's all I'm doing that and hanging out with grandkids. Awesome. Well, I'm, I'm loving, I love talking about relationships. I love practical stuff. So this is, these are the kinds of studies to get my juices going. All right. Well, again, if you, you know, to learn more, you know, Gottman.com, that is, uh, they got a, there's a world of, uh, information there. John's written, you know, tons of books. Uh, the most accessible would be uh, Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work. And the other one uh, with the same co-writer uh, is called uh, What Makes Love Last. I would recommend those mm-hmm. people, you know, that just as uh, you know, more of a uh, entry into this uh, you know, world of Gottman research. Awesome. Nice. Well, I'm afraid we have come to the end of our time. Time certainly has flown. This has been a fascinating, uh, uh, very informative conversation. Can't thank you enough for taking the time to talk with us, Michael. All right. It's been been a real pleasure. And I think we can have you stick around right now and wrap this thing up with us. Okay. So so <laughs> if you're ready, you get just remember what your name is. The rest you'll figure okay. out. Okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, we are coming now to the end of this episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. As always, we love to hear from our listeners. We value your feedback, and you can reach us at piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. That's it for this week. Until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. Oh, and I'm Mike. On the Pirate Monk Podcast. <laughs> The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com. <laughs>